So that would have been the behavioral dynamics methodology and the um, the work that was done for the British government, um, you know, the military side of their work. And yes, this does seem to have been methods that um, were then deployed in politics. And that concerns me. Hi everyone. Before we get started, I have to plug a few quick things. First of all, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available to order. You can read some chapter previews by following the link in the description below. Our sponsors, ExpressVPN, get 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN and get 25% off podcast hosting with Podium. Finally, if you're watching this on YouTube, please go check out odyssey.com instead. We are hosting all our videos there. If you're a creator, you can move your videos across with one simple click and you can earn cryptocurrency simply by watching videos and use it to tip your favorite creators like myself. So please check that all out if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am talking to associate researcher Emma Bryan, who is the propaganda and influence operations specialist at Bard College. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be able to chat with you. <laughs> no problem. So uh, we're here to talk all about Cambridge Analytica and SCL, which is incredibly topical given that they get an entire chapter in my recently released book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War. So before we get into all of that, Emma, why don't you give us like a, a little bit of background on yourself and, and sort of how you arrived at the position you're in today? Sure. Um, so I, I research information warfare and propaganda. Um, and when I was um, doing my doctorate uh, at, in Glasgow, at Glasgow University, I was focusing in sort of 2004 to 2011 um, at the war on terror that had obviously emerged out of the um, uh, 9-11 attacks and so on, and the ways that governments were adapting to changing warfare and changing media environments and so on. So, you know, propaganda had gone digital and I was actually, you know, studying that evolution and the ways that the governments were responding. And one of the ways that they were changing the way that they did propaganda was to hire a heck of a lot more private companies, which they saw as having the expertise with new tools and new methods uh, in, you know, engaging in the online, you know, propaganda environment. So as uh, terrorists and insurgents were looking to recruit online, um, you know, governments were looking to respond to that and try to, you know, counter those efforts. Um, and they hired companies like SCL, Strategic Communication Laboratories. And that is how I uh, encountered this firm, which was the parent company of what eventually became uh, Cambridge Analytica. 
Um, so you will all know Cambridge Analytica from all the headlines in 2018. Um, and I was actually one of the people who was, you know, central in revealing wrongdoing around uh, this company's political campaigns. But my, you know, how I first came across the firm was actually in this research looking at what governments do. And it was looking at their, you know, parent company as a government contractor. Now, this was a firm that worked for uh, the UK government as well as for the Pentagon and State Department and for uh, NATO. Uh, and I was really interested in the unique you know, methodologies that they were sort of um, selling themselves upon. And um, it wasn't until a bit later that I started to look at politics and look at the ways in which um, this firm, you know, was using their uh, tools and adapting them for, the, you know, political campaigns. And, you know, I discovered this <laughs> was really quite unethical and disturbing, uh, the, the way that these, you know, tools that have been developed really for primarily in the first instance for the military context were also being repurposed for, for political campaigns. Um, so, you know, these two companies, so the, the parent company, SCL, uh, which worked for defense contractors, had a particular methodology that was based on uh, the work of a lot of academics that it would sort of nurture relationships with uh, through, through its research center, the Behavioral Dynamics Institute. And it came up with this behavioral dynamics methodology, which I thought was really interesting when I was studying my PhD and writing my last book. Uh, and I interviewed a lot of the people involved. Um, and this behavioral dynamics method was all about changing behaviors rather than changing attitudes. Um, and I think it was this kind of philosophy and approach that then was uh, developed further by uh, the political arm of the company to, you know, create this big data um, approach that they then, um, that Cambridge Analytica then deployed in uh, elections in the United States. Mm. Okay, there's a lot there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's all right. It, it actually it gives us like a nice little sort of base from which to like pick pick things up, um, so we can explain the whole point that that you're trying to make and that I'm hoping to to get out of this. So why don't we back up a little bit and and go to who who are SCL? Like where do they come from? Like who are the people who were involved in the company? Um, and like why were they set up in the first place? So um, this was really the brainchild of a person called Nigel Oakes, uh, who has been reported on quite a lot, especially um, during the early, you know, um, uh, breaking news around the Cambridge Analytical scandal, um, because he sort of set up these companies which developed into SCL, a defense contractor that worked a lot for governments. Now, um, he also worked in, you know, marketing and, and um, uh, worked for Saatchi and Saatchi um, in his earlier career. He set up a bunch of companies that were sort of selling his kind of ideas about behavioral science's role in persuasion, um, selling things like, you know, how can uh, companies, um, you know, sell more products, maybe 
through like um, senses like smell and emotions and things like this. So he was very interested in sort of subliminal messaging in the early days and things like that. And he um, partnered with uh, somebody called uh, Alexander Nix, who maybe is the more famous person because Alexander Nix was the one who went on to become the CEO of Cambridge Analytica. But um, Nigel Oakes and Alexander Nix worked together for years. And um, the group of companies uh, that that they built together, uh, SCL Group, um, worked across a lot of different areas, but it was most well known for its military, uh, you know, um, uh, m- military psychological operations role, uh, where it would do target audience analysis. Now, that's trying to understand the audiences in a particular part of the world that um, a military might want to, uh, you know, target with um, winning hearts and minds campaigns of what they call uh, psychological operations uh, in a military context. And Nigel Oakes really headed up the defense side of the company and was also the CEO of Behavioral Dynamics Institute, which developed all the methods that then would get used in the military, um, uh, you know, profiling and so on, and audience analysis, um, but also then got repurposed by um, Alexander Nix for the political campaigns, which have been, so, you know, highlighted as so very unethical. Hmm. So um, you mentioned some of the tools that that they they developed and used and moved from using them in like a military context to then using them in a in the political world. Uh, so can you give me some uh, some examples of of the tools they they they've used and and then why they were able to take them and apply them to politics? Well, I think, you know, obviously the, the most famous example is the Trump campaign uh, using uh, Cambridge Analytica's methodology. But I think less is known about the behavioral dynamics methodology. And, you know, that was used for years uh, for, by militaries who were wanting to, for instance, um, uh, you know, persuade audiences in places like Iraq or Afghanistan to, um, you know, change their behaviors. And one of the things that, you know, they tried to pioneer with this approach was actually a shift away from attitudinal change. So in the early part of the um, war on terror, uh, companies were being hired uh, to run, you know, propaganda campaigns abroad that were really designed to kind of measure attitudes of people people in Iraq and Afghanistan to America and to the, you know, um, uh, the coalition that was coming in and, you know, looking at how to change the attitudes that the, that the local people would have. Um, but really it was realization that actually this wasn't doing very much in a, you know, a military sense. Um, and it didn't really matter too much what, Iraqis thought of Americans, what really mattered was whether or not they would support the uh, new Iraqi constitution, for instance, whether or not there was support for the insurgents and were they helping the insurgents? Uh, Were they, you know, laying 
landmines, for instance? Can we change the behaviors of the people to stop uh, people you know, planting bombs or, or laying landmines or working for the um, insurgents or supporting um, uh, the Taliban, in, in, for instance, um, in, in, in Afghanistan? So, so how do we change the behaviors of the people that, um, you know, in a military context would mean that there is, you know, less need to kill people, for instance, in a, in a military conflict. You are, you are wanting to try to, uh, you know, limit the damage, um, find consensual ways of, you know, going about warfare, but also maybe also you know, do sort of reputational um, management when it comes to, you know, these being very, very uh, troubling conflicts that, let's face it, over the years also involved things like, um, you know, abuses and which, you know, led to really, you know, negative um, uh, outcomes in the, in the countries concerned. And governments became obviously also very, you know, worried about how this was impacting their ability to act in, um, you know, in, in, in theater around the world. So companies like this, you know, obviously took particular approach where they were seeking to, you know, try to change the behaviors of the local communities. And that really was where they pioneered this. So uh, but it also was important that, you know, they were trying these techniques out, which some of which might be more appropriate in a, um, an environment where you're trying to change the behavior of insurgents and uh, maybe trying to even stop people from becoming radicalized uh, by trying to stop them going to a particular, you know, mosque or, or uh, you know, um, uh, stop stopping them engaging with certain groups. Um, so, if those kinds of techniques may not really be appropriate, for instance, if you were to develop them for politics. And really, when you're talking about, you know, de democratic elections, uh, you want to be going about things ideally if you are, you know, doing them in a way that corresponds with democracy in a much less manipulative way. Um, so I, I would say that this is where some of the issues kind of arose. Um, because actually we want people to be deliberating over their political decisions. Mm. So how exactly, what, what techniques exactly would they be using to try and change people's behavior? Like what, what would they be doing aside from the standard political messaging? It's not so much that the, um, the methods, the, the, um, the communication itself was different to what other people would be doing. It's more about how audiences were modeled mm. and how that develops the approach that you take to using communications. So what this firm were all about was about how to understand audiences and how to change their behaviors. And that then would, you know, shape the strategy that was taken. Mm. Propaganda and disinformation and, you know, you know, manipulative communications have been going on since the beginning of time. Okay. The, the first time that one person tried to persuade another <laughs> and, you know, um, they didn't, you know, this company didn't invent uh, persuasion or, 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 um, 
or, or uh, fake news, shall we say. <laughs> what it did is try to understand audiences in a new way that was basically about focusing on the ends, not necessarily the means. So if you're looking to change the outcome, then really it's, it's, it's all about, you know, focusing on the, you know, what can be achieved and how behavior can be changed and less about the, you know, uh, methods of getting there. Mm. And um, I would say that, you know, they then would work back. And so you would get the methods of, you know, how to change behavior from understanding what, what outcome you want to achieve and the local population and, you know, what audience factors there are, the uh, context, context in, and political situation, the history. And a lot of firms at that time were really not doing this kind of work on, you know, complex work, taking into account all of these different factors. So it was more about strengthening how one profiles audiences than it was about particular um, nuances of the communication produced. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So how were they segmenting and, and classifying audiences that, that is different or revolutionary? Because it's as, as far back as I can, I can look at political campaigning, it's been about, okay, so we need to worry about the women's vote and the student vote and the, you know, the, or the Latino vote or, or any of these, these issues. Of course. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. What was well, different about the breakdown? Those are all demographics. Mm. Uh, so demographics are about like gender or age or, you know, race or, you know. And um, what we're talking about is, I mean, they, they would obviously be using these as well because this is important. We all know that. Mm. Um, but it was about how do you identify the right group to target for the particular um, outcome you want to achieve. And it might be that you are targeting a particular group that isn't necessarily the one that you want to change the behavior of, okay? So it's all about developing strategy of how we get from A to B. Um, they did polling the same way that other people do. But the, the type of questions you might ask are more about understanding what will create the behavior you want to create rather than trying to, you know, only like understand um, attitudes and how to change them. And I think that is where the difference is because it, a lot of traditional polling is exactly what you're talking about is, is about like, well, how do we understand the makeup of this, you know, the demographics of this group? How do we know what they want and what they don't want? But actually what they want and what they don't want may not be the key to changing their behavior. And that is where SCL were trying to add value, okay, is, is in trying to understand what will change your behavior. And so, for instance, like, I mean, you can, you can think of examples from marketing that might illustrate this for you well. Um, let's say you want to sell frozen peas, okay? What you want to do is to understand what makes people eat frozen peas. In what context will they eat frozen peas? Do they associate frozen peas with a particular holiday or another product? And so, well, if they 
eat frozen peas when they're having fish and chips, then maybe you want actually to encourage people to eat fish and chips, and then you will sell more frozen peas. Does that make sense? Because fish and so, chips is the easier sell. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm, okay. So. You know, there may be ways that you can create a behavior. Now, the origins of this go way back. But the, you know, um, so there's a theorist called um, Edward Bernays, for instance, who, you know, um, pioneered these kind of ideas where, you know, he had this concept of um, the bookcase. If you want to sell books, what you need to do is to make bookcases something sexy to have in your home. <laughs> and then people will buy books to put in their bookcases. <laughs> so this, this kind of theory goes a long way back, but it was something that was really not being acted on in the early uh, part of this um, period. So the, the war on terror was really, you know, failing at figuring out how to mobilize audiences in a way that would change behavior. And so Nigel Oakes, um, you know, as part of his work at SCL was trying to sell this to governments hmm. in a way that really wasn't being done at the time, you know, by other, other kind of companies. And yet, you know, this has become much more mainstream as this period uh, went on. And I think that actually resulted in a lot of decline of the government work that they were getting. And that is one of the reasons, I think, why the political side of the business that, that you know, Alexander Nix was building became more lucrative and became a larger part of their, you know, turnover, if you like, mm -hmm. because there were fewer um, contracts available for the defense side of the firm. And, you know, the war on terror wound down um, and was less lucrative. And, you know, the company was sort of seeking more work from politics and becoming very successful in that regard. Mm. Yeah, that the, the way you've explained it there makes it a lot clearer as to why Steve Bannon became so interested in the company <laughs> um, with his whole philosophy that politics is downstream from culture um, and to change the politics, you have to change the culture. And that the reason that he went for this company is makes a lot more sense now, actually. Um, yeah. Thanks to the way you've explained that. So how, how successful were... so? Cambridge Analytica themselves, um, coming into 2016, they were then part of two of the biggest upsets of modern political history. Um, now, you can debate as to their influence in said upsets, but um, I think we can at least say they were part of those successes. Yeah. Uh, so previously, and this is something I came across quite a lot in, in my research for my book, um, in the, the chapter where I write quite a lot about SEL, was that they seemed to be very good at marketing their skills at marketing, or, or, or they, they were very good at creating the illusion that they were these propaganda messaging geniuses. And it's Definitely. very unclear as to how good they actually were at it. Uh, yeah. what, what is your sense of that? So, okay, I wasn't there on all their campaigns and things like this. Um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm just a researcher. So um, I'm going on, you know, what I've managed to discern from my, you know, interviews with the company, uh, from evaluations of what they had done that were published by 
you know, that I've managed to obtain through freedom of information and things like that from governments, um, through having talked to governments who hired them, uh, from, you know, evaluations of the tools that uh, academics have done, of course. Um, so from all that, I would say, I mean, for me, some of the most damning evidence um, has been, you know, from people within the company themselves, uh, as well as, you know, the military, the UK military who evaluated the tools. And really they found them, yes, useful, but not like overwhelmingly powerful in the way that the company claimed they were. Hmm. Um, FPL on its website, for instance, in the early days, claimed to be the most powerful weapon in the world. Well, anyone could tell that's a load of rubbish. <laughs> Um, but I do think that there is a lot to this argument that, you know, um, that, you know, academic, you know, skills and, and, um, and research and behavioral science can enhance methods of persuasion that focusing on behavioral change and what you want to achieve as an outcome may well be, you know, a, a, a better approach for some, um, military purposes, for instance, um, I think it raises a lot of issues in the, you know, political, you know, democratic elections, um, as, as I've explained a little. Um, but, you know, I don't think that this is bad science. OK, these these are common principles that are deployed by a lot of different companies nowadays. Um, and, you know, the work that they did seems to have varied quite greatly. So there are campaigns that they worked on, which actually look terribly badly researched. Okay. The work that was behind it appalling. <laughs> um, however, other campaigns that I've looked at look very well done, quite honestly, in terms of like effectiveness of research. So I think it very much depended on who they had at the time working on the particular campaign. And there was an awful lot of variability in the work. Um, also, I'd make the distinction, of course, between what um, behavioral dynamics was doing um, and what Cambridge Analytica did, which was very different methodologies. Um, and the Cambridge Analytica methodology, um, which was based on social, so social media data, um, seems to have been comparable to other um, similar approaches in most senses. But Research that I've been looking at, um, you know, from when, within the company that what they had been, you know, evaluating seems to suggest that their targeting of uh, neurotics, for instance, with fear driven messaging created a lot more engagement. And so it might be that, that some of these particular tools uh, like, or, or methods um, had a greater efficacy and in quite concerning ways. Uh, so I would say that, you know, it just depends on what you're talking about. Would this be something that sells a lot of, you know, um, uh, soda or, you know, gym memberships? No. Would it help you sell, you know, guns, for instance, or would it help you elect certain types of politicians? Probably. And so I think it, with, as with everything, the methodology that you choose may well, you know, differ in its effectiveness depending on what you're applying it to. Mm. So 
So um, I would say it varied across time. Don't forget, this was a company that was running for like 30 years, basically. A small to medium-sized company. I want to stress that because, you know, they were not the only company in the world. But they also worked on a heck of a lot of different campaigns in very different media contexts. And they would have had more skill in some places than in others. Um, they would have had been working with very different media, very different data sets in different parts of the world. And you have to take that into account when you're saying, you know, is this an effective company or not? Well, they're doing different things in different places. So how do you say, you know, based on one example, you know, everybody's looking at the United States, for instance, and what they did for Trump and then generalizing across the company of, you know, oh, well, they were not effective. Well, they were really effective. Well, I think you have to look across the different places that they worked and and, and look at the cr different campaigns, look at their effectiveness and their, um, you know, uh, ethics as well and, and how they were done and try to understand those in a more nuanced way. And that's something I'm trying to do for my book. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to be said about why that fear-based messaging in particular was so successful in the Trump yeah. and Brexit campaigns and has not been seen to be as effective in, in other places or before or after. How much, how much do you think cultural resonance that needs to be taken account of here mm. and every campaign that they worked on around the world you know was in a different cultural context and the messaging you develop and the data set on which you develop it will be different depending on where you work some places for instance i mean a lot of parts of the world they would not have had the data set that you had in the united states mm. um you know, if you're looking at the African campaigns, for instance, you would have very, very different data available uh, to what you have in, in the United States. So I think generalizations that have been made, you know, about effectiveness and data sets are really unhelpful. But they, um, I, I do think that we should be talking more about the ethics of what they were doing and how they were doing and things like voter suppression and looking at like the extent to which this occurred, I think is really quite important. So I want to get onto the ethics here in a minute, but I, I'm curious as to how much you think social media has changed their game from when they set up in the, from when the SEL was started in the sort of mid to late eighties and the, the, yeah, the 2015 world onwards where we had micro-targeted ads and incredible data sets for people on social media. Like, how, how much has social media, both given them the data sets that they previously would have had to search very hard from and has potentially actually also killed their business model in a way that they're not as unique anymore because so many people have access to such um, detailed data on on populations because of, of things like Facebook? Um, okay, so uh, there's a lot to pick apart there. Um, okay, so first of all, you know, when the company first set up um, and, and actually the whole of like, SCL's work um, before Cambridge Analytica was was spun off uh, was all about um, 
behavioral change with fairly traditional, like based on sort of fairly traditional data gathering methods, mostly. Um, and that's involving these kinds of behavioral polling and things like that. So, so it's, it's it interviews, it's, it's uh, surveys and things, but using the kind of methods like I've talked about. So you're orienting it around how to change behavior. That doesn't necessarily mean they were using social media data, okay? Um, and really, it wasn't until Cambridge Analytica happened that they started, you know, developing this data set to set up in America because they knew that other companies in America were already using social media heavily. So it's not like they invented using social media, okay? Yeah. I want to make that clear. Um, so it wasn't something that has... Um, you know, resulted in their business model um, becoming less unique or, you know, more um, readily available to others and so on. Um, I would say that it's more that um, the, the social media was becoming available all throughout this whole time, you know, from sort of like... Uh, the 9-11 period onwards, and actually governments were using this, you know, extensively throughout this period, where SCL were using fairly traditional surveying and interviewing techniques and things like that, because they believed in the richness of the data. Hmm. Now, new data sets obviously expand on that greatly and enable a hell of a lot more behavioral information to be available. Like, what are we buying, for instance? How does this you know, open up a window into our culture and our um, behavior and our, our personality and so on. Um, and, you know, Cambridge Analytica's role was, was really to try to exploit that to the, as much as possible, but also to exploit people's belief that this was the thing that would uh, be the, you know, key to, to, to persuasion and key to manipulation and behavioral change and so on, uh, because it was a big seller at the time, okay? And it's something that, yes, they, I think they developed quite unique and quite troubling methods uh, with Cambridge Analytica, with the help of Steve Bannon and so on. Um, and, but it also is something that didn't really detract from the sales of their original product, um, in, in defense, I would say, um, that was still very much respected, particularly for, by governments, um, as something that, you know, actually uh, was, was seen as, as, as really key to understanding audiences in a more nuanced and more in a richer way, you know, because qualitative data, um, data about small groups that you want to change is probably more uh, helpful for, psychological operations uh, because you're not trying to necessarily move a huge group, uh, massive groups and, uh, you know, of electorate. You're actually trying to sometimes just create changes among small groups of insurgents. Mm -hmm. Now it's better to understand those on small data. You know, they don't necessarily need a massive polling of the whole country and modeling of them on social media and so on. <laughs> um, and this would not necessarily be available for somewhere like Iraq, Afghanistan, or, you know, many of the military contexts that, um, you know, governments would be working in. 
So you may well be wanting these kinds of smaller data techniques of behavioral change much more appropriate to those kinds of places. And the types of media may be, uh, you know, populations might be more used to using the radio as a, as a media uh, form than social media, you know? This is something that took off more, you know, in the latter period of the company's kind of work. So should we be allowing this kind of technology to be used in, in a political context or even in a military context to, to, be, to be quite it's honest? Uh, you mean what Cambridge Analytica did? Yeah, like uh, how, I mean, I know that some of the the tools that they were using were looked at by the UK government, as you mentioned, and they were some of them at least I think were export controlled because they were considered to be a a weapon. And as as you mentioned, we we can sort of speculate to the efficacy of said weapon. Um, but, but, uh, that was BDI. So that would have been the behavioral dynamics methodology and the, um, the work that was done for the British government, um, you know, the military side of their work. And yes, this does seem to have been methods that um, were then deployed in politics. And that concerns me. Mm. Um, it wasn't that... I think this this is the type of methodology which then Cambridge Analytica developed upon to create what they did with social media. Mm. Um, so the basic method uh, was was that of the, the Behavioral Dynamics uh, Institute, and that was used for their earlier campaigns, both political and defense. Um, I think personally that companies shouldn't be working uh, in both political campaigns in the kind of places that came, that SCL and Cambridge Analytica used to work in and working for our governments. I think there needs to be a lot more control over where uh, defense contractors can also work. And I think that they should be required to declare where they are working. And that background checks should not just be applied to specific individuals that are working on military campaigns, but should apply across the whole company. And, you know, the, the, the hiring of SCL in, in other, you know, countries for its political work, to me, is something that is troubling. Um, I don't think companies should be able to do that. And it's not just uh, that company that, that uh, is is hired, you know, for for two purposes. You know, this is something that is pretty uh, ordinary in contracting, and it doesn't necessarily mean that those companies are all doing bad things. Okay, um, there is supposed to be a firewall that exists between the political work that these companies do and the military work. Personally, though, I think this example shows that there is too high a risk by enabling. Um, companies to work across different uh, domains. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it's concerning. I mean, one of the things that makes it so difficult to, to, to even attempt to regulate that kind of thing with these companies is that, so we've already talked about, about SEL, uh, the SEL group, the behavioral, uh, behavioral dynamics Institute. Uh, mm -hmm. We've talked about Cambridge Analytica um, we haven't even mentioned aggregate IQ, um, which are definitely 
10% totally not the same company. They just got all their contracts <laughs> funding and um, all their intellectual property is owned by Cambridge Analytica, but it's not the same company. Um, awesome. No. And it's certainly not SCL Canada. <laughs> Definitely not SCL Canada. I don't care what that phone listing was on their website uh, for Zach Massingham, the, the head of Aggregate IQ. If anyone's interested in what we're talking about, I will link some of the stuff I've written about Good. this in the in the description. <laughs> and, and if you don't mind, if you can link to some of what I've written, that would be great too. Yeah. Learn more. Yeah, I definitely will. Um, I'll, 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 I'll put, put links to all your, your stuff that I can find as well, or anything you want to send me, go ahead and do that. But how, how do we, how do we attempt to try and get a grasp on these companies when they are operating through so many different subcontractors, sub subcontractors, um, through different yeah. webs of company? Like, how can, how can, how can we try, even if we wanted to, which I don't think our government does, even if we, we, we <laughs> even if we had like totally altruistic and honest politicians who, who genuinely wanted to attempt to prevent corruption and, and, you know, morally questionable acts, how would we start when it's so difficult to even grasp who's doing the work? Well, I think there's a lot you can do. Um, and, you know, you asked me before about, like, what tools should they be allowed to use and so on. Um, I do think that, you know, platforms like Facebook, for instance, have an important responsibility here. We have, you know, micro-targeting um, that has been developed, which really, you know, sways the pers persuasion process mm. against, and uh, you know, the users of the platform um, to an extent where I don't think it's possible for people to uh, understand how they are being targeted. And it uh, creates this kind of asymmetry around what is known about you um, and what you know about them who, who are targeting you. Hmm. So um, I think we need to rebalance that asymmetry. And, you know, the platforms may well need to be forced into doing that. Um, I, I don't really believe in uh, this micro-targeting. At the very least, it you know, there needs to be a requirement that, you know, a uh, certain amount of... Um, messaging goes out that's not micro-targeted um, so that, you know, you can't sort of hide things and, and, and uh, people are able to get um, a more diverse, uh, you know, uh, amount of messages that they are receiving, for instance. Um, there are a lot of issues, though, not just with Facebook, um, but the, you know, the, the process of, of analyzing your data and targeting you starts way before the messaging gets on the platforms. Um, and companies and organizations have their own data sets, which they, you know, are putting together with new data that they bought from um, data brokers and so on. And it's this kind of process um, particularly in the United States where this is much less controlled, that, you know, um, we need to be looking more at and we need more data in order to do it about the companies. There is very little transparency. So one of the key things has to be funding research that will look at those companies and also 
enabling transparency around the companies concerned that are working in the influence industry, who are the creators of the content that then goes on to uh, Facebook. It's too late once it's on the platform and, you know, being circulated around the world to then say, okay, maybe we should take this down. (laughs) Even when it's already in Facebook's hands, why should they be the ones to be making these decisions? Even if it's with the help of outside independent moderators from journalism, for instance, Mm. um, I think there's a, there's a, there's a part of this puzzle which isn't being looked at and people not being held accountable who are trying to, to, to craft these campaigns in the first place and who are creating the content that they then are trying to put out on, on the platforms. Um, and don't forget, this is many platforms. This isn't just about Facebook. This is about, you know, if, if, you, if you take things down off Twitter and Facebook, um, these companies will find other outlets and, you know, just craft a campaign in a slightly different way. Um, and what, so what we need to do is to regulate that industry, make it more transparent. There are ways as well that you can do this, um, you know, from, from the sense of, of government contractors. So we talked earlier about, you know, the way that um, SCL uh, was was working in, in other parts of the world um, and that, you know, we didn't really know enough about what they were doing. Um, well, governments can require certain information from, you know, more information um, as part of the procurement process for contractors. And one thing I want to do is open up that process to more scrutiny, allowing, for instance, freedom of information to extend to private companies that contract government would also help us to evaluate, you know, how they're getting those contracts and what they're doing on our behalf, mm-hmm. paid for by our taxes, and, you know, requiring, uh, in, in particular, defense contractors, you know, may not want to make too much, uh, you know, open to the public, and there may be a decent reason why, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to make everything public, but there should also be certain things that they are required to declare to governments that maybe could be extended further. So if you want to be working on our behalf to, you know, in, in defense, um, maybe we, we need more disclosure, more disclosure to governments that may not be then made public if it's a national security concern, but at least governments would have more information available to them to evaluate companies uh, and networks of companies and who they're working with, for instance. So a lot of these, a lot of the things that we're talking about here are are kind of in the past a, a little bit. Even even the the Brexit, Trump, Cambridge Analytica stuff, and then Cambridge Cambridge Analytica were sort of very gracefully folded down amidst police raids of their offices, and. Um, there were rumors circulating online that they had simply taken everything and reformed themselves as another company called, I think it's Emmer Data or Emmer Data. Mm-hmm. So have, have they sort of gone away? Have these techniques got more dangerous and unethical? Um, what do we need to be looking out for in 2021 and, and beyond in, in this realm? 
Well, I don't want to be making wild claims about what Emma Data are doing. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, journalists haven't really um, done the work around investigating that. Um, so we we need more, more work done, I think, to be able to answer that question. I would say, though, that, you know, obviously um, everybody who worked for these companies has gone on to do all sorts of other things. Um, many of those people, you know, like, were not necessarily involved in decision-making around wrongdoing and things like that. So it's important not to, you know, make the assumption that everybody who left the company and then went on to do something else is, is doing wrong. Um, you know, I think that what we need is actually to look at this wider industry, including perhaps these companies that, you know, are, are still working in this kind of area. But, you know, as part of a wider um way to try to understand uh, the way that these business models um, have, have been developed, um, uh, the way that the political economy of the industry has developed, um, the you know, extent to which unethical activities happen around, you know, uh, around the world is <clears throat> something that we, we don't have enough data on. And um, I would say that you referred to these things as, as something of the past. I don't think that this is, these are still issues of the past. Unfortunately, you know, although there was an investigation, um, not enough really came out of that in terms of action to enable more transparency for us to understand more about this industry and how to regulate it. And certainly we, we didn't really have enough regulation rolled out, uh, these debates around data and how it's used and disinformation are still very current and ongoing. Mm. Um, so I would say that, you know, this is still a, a, a valid ongoing concern. Well, that feels like a nice place uh, in which to, to wrap things up. Emma, is there is there anything you want to plug before we, we finish up here? <laughs> My upcoming book, Propaganda Machine, um, and the that. website that, uh, that you know, people can have a look at. I actually mapped uh, Cambridge Analytica and SCL's work all around the world, um, what's known in the, in the public domain of that work. Um, so, you know, that is something that I think people will definitely want to check out. Uh, it's an interactive map. So you can click on different countries and look at what, you know, what articles were reported uh, uh, in those different places. And it's a good portal to understand more. Mm. I know the map. I have looked at it myself. It is is very useful. So I will I will link that and, and things for your book, uh, your previous My book, your upcoming book articles on it as well so you know i i obviously publish new information about these companies and you know i've i've also written about a new company that was set up after the cambridge analytica scandal uh with um former uh employees of scl who are you know working currently using behavioral dynamics uh working for governments so that's you know ongoing um interesting uh reporting Fantastic. Well, uh, as we said, we will put links for everything in the in the uh, description below. So, Emma, thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been thank a pleasure. You. Enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter, or sign up to our mailing list. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN. 
and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. That's Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.